Yeah, now we're coming to the part I've been waiting for, McMahon. The coronation of the new king of the World Wrestling Federation, the macho man Randy Savage, who destroyed Duggar. From Television City in Hollywood. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. Following Wrestling Against Admission requires discretionary viewer participation. Greetings from Allentown is taped in front of a live studio audience. Greetings from Allentown. I'm your host, Peter Winston. And today, we're going back to 1989 for some WWF action. You don't have to pull my arm or twist my arm or whatever to get me to do that. This would be a time of the year that is a little bit of a black hole for me, at least in terms of 1989 WWF, from September 30th of 1989, that period between SummerSlam and Survivor Series, I've covered a lot of shows in June. I've covered two shows in June of 89 and then a wrestling challenge from March, but never anything from this point in the year, at least to my recollection. I mean, I've done 112 of these things and I'm getting old. I, I can't remember all this stuff. I had my birthday this past week and it was kind of a milestone thing. And I, I may be going through a midlife crisis as I record this podcast. So who knows? And I don't know, this is one of those weeks where I had a little bit of time to watch extra programming around the show that I'm watching, and particularly the Rick Rude and Roddy Piper feud, which basically played out on primetime wrestling with Bobby Heenan as the proxy. But we have a Rick Rude match on this show, so I'll certainly go into it a little bit more when I get to that point. But let me get in my plugs first. You can email the show greetings from allentown at gmail.com facebook.com slash greetings from allentown give me a follow on twitter at gf allentown pod that is at gf allentown pod and you may be listening to the show on the pro wrestling only feed more on all you can find at pro wrestling only a little bit later on in the show including some new programs that will be coming to the podcast feed in the coming weeks and of course some of the written series that appear on the website but let me digress from that a little bit because my birthday was this past Sunday and I'm always very surprised that people actually know when it is because I forget that, oh yeah, it appears on LinkedIn, it appears on Facebook because they make you put in your birthday or whatever and I just completely forget about all of that and for, for whatever reason, it, it's very nice to get those well wishes but this was a particularly eventful birthday as this is my 40th birthday. I'm a man! I'm 40! I believe it's actually federal law and probably international law too under United Nations Resolution 771 that you have to play that sound clip when you turn 40 if you're a guy. So anyway, it was a long day because all I wanted on Saturday, the day before, from the Bruins-Columbus Blue Jackets playoff game that started at 8.15 at TD Garden because thank you very much, NBC 
is please don't go to overtime, but if you are going to go to overtime, could you at least settle it in the first 20 minutes? Well, of course, that wasn't going to happen. So as it turned out, the second overtime started right as midnight struck or we were supposed to you know we walked from the concourse to our seats because there was two minutes before that happened so I got to ring in my birthday in the arena watching hockey which sounds great but I just had a foreboding sense that something bad was going to happen in this case and sure enough a BS penalty on the Bruins not a BS penalty per se because Patrice Bergeron tripped him it's just that Columbus is hauling down guys in the first in, first overtime, and literally nothing gets called, and somehow the Bruins get called twice for that by referee Tim Peel, one of the worst officials in any sport. For those of you who don't follow hockey but follow other sports like baseball, he is hockey's Angel Hernandez or Joe West, or like in basketball, what Dick Bavetta used to be, or, or even you know your Tim Donahue's back in the day. So I'm a little upset about that until I remembered, oh yeah, he's probably rotating out and he will not be doing any Bruins games from now on. So big celebration from that. So of course I get home at 1.15 in the morning and I was pleased that my wife actually waited up for me and greeted me with, hey, let's just go to bed <laughs> right now. Because you know, the next day we were going to go to a brewery up here in Lowell. I probably mentioned it before, Navigation Brewing, which we frequent uh, quite a bit. It's only open Thursday through Sunday, and usually they have a food truck outside, but they didn't in this case. So I had to, I had actually gone down to Woburn, Mass, and gone to Bill and Bob's Roast Beef. Was, I don't know. We don't have as many roast beef places in my particular area of the North Shore for what I'm looking for, and Bill and Bob's, that's where I grew up, and I went down to visit my mother because at the very least you should you should visit your mother on your birthday if you can because you know she did give birth uh, to me i mean it's it's the least i can do and then run two miles to prove that i could still do it at the age of 40 so come back and uh, some friends of mine we, we all meet at the brewery and i had jokingly said that this was an autograph signing so a couple people took me <laughs> Took him up, took me up on my friends Chris and Sarah brought eight by eleven photos for me to sign. One of me asleep in a beach chair, which I don't know. I, I was wondering why my bathing suit looked all weird, and then I realized that was actually the beach towel wrapped around. So maybe I should get my eyes checked. If you hear any weird noises in the background, we get the the cat Noki running around. She's a lot noisier than the last one, who would just kind of sit and observe the proceedings. This one's jumping up and knocking my or at least looking to knock my records off the wall get out of there get you know what i'm not going to get up because she's going to have to learn not to go in there and it's probably going to fall over so if you hear a big crash in the next minute and a half whatever so i'm i'm going down the list of beers at the at the brewery and of course keithy is there as well amongst you know as i said he's a character amongst all my friends the the voice of greetings from allentown and he, you know, sometimes I'm very concerned about him because he had told me that he was getting back into grass. Now, I'm not going to lay judgment on anybody for that, but apparently his brother gave him some edibles. And he only had one piece. His brother took two pieces of it. And that's that's fine. But So he eats the one piece, and then he starts 
sweating profusely, breathing heavily. He he can't sleep. So in his infinite wisdom, he decides to watch the Red Sox versus Oakland A's game that was airing from the West Coast on television that night. And I would not want to watch the 2019 Red Sox while high on anything. Or perhaps maybe you do need to be high. I, I don't know. I, I don't I don't cheer for that team. Although I do find them strangely more watchable now that they've been knocked down a peg. So he stays up, watches the entire game, goes to work the next day, and is like a zombie. And he says, you know, like, what the hell was in that? And, and finally, the, the punchline of it is, well, you should have had the second edible. <laughs> the second one would have normalized him. But, oh, boy, he's he's always... He's always getting into something, but it was very nice to see him there, even though he was doing that Goodfellas thing again, grabbing my face. It's like, look at this genius. Look at this genius. If I, I would pull the clip, but they, they're playing Frosty the Snowman in the movie, and you can't really hear him all that well. <laughs> so credit to him for actually remembering the line, even though it's like undercut by the song in the actual movie. So that was a fun time had by all, and then going out to dinner to a Thai place, which I'd love to travel back to tell 20-year-old me that I'm going to a Thai place on my 20 Like, oh, you like Pad Thai? Like, no. No, Pad Thai is like generic Thai food. Expand your horizons. Get something else. Get something spicy if you can. Try other stuff. Try Laotian food. Try Indonesian food. There's a whole there's a whole Southeast Asia out there for you to eat and enjoy. Expand your horizons. Life life is a journey. You you never know what tomorrow is going to bring. Uh, such as like I'm as I record this tomorrow may be my last day at my job because. That while they told me I've been extended to the end of June, they haven't actually put it through in the system or whoever has not pushed the button to actually approve it. So my IDs are all going to go kaput unless that person actually gets to it and does it. So I don't know. Stay tuned. Maybe by the end of me recording this show, I'll actually have an answer on it. Wink, wink. So to bring it back to wrestling, I said that I had watched a lot of 1989 stuff around the time of this. And by that, I mean the Roddy Piper, Bobby Heenan segments on primetime wrestling and centered around that feud. But also on that same video that I was watching, I think it was labeled just August slash September 1989 or September slash October. Also on that video was just a bunch of Hercules matches from primetime wrestling. I'm like, who the hell put this together? Because apparently Herc was a staple of PTW in the fall of 89. It's like him versus Akeem, which I guess went on to be a Coliseum video, something or other. He actually slams Akeem at the end of the match. But another fun thing from that YouTube video is a Rockers Heart Foundation match that I had completely forgotten about. Remember the one in 1990 that was supposed to be on a Saturday Night's Main Event, but the rope broke, and then they just kind of pretended that it didn't happen, and then the footage was released years and years later. Well, apparently, 1989, there's a match between the two teams that I had absolutely no recollection of. It aired on Primetime Wrestling, and the Rougeau brothers, who will appear on this particular show, made their presence felt at the end of it, just kind of running in and causing havoc for both teams. Very eventful taping here in a very busy week for the World Wrestling Federation. August 30th, 1989 is when this taping of Superstars, so it airs a month later. But the 28th, the Monday night, is SummerSlam in the Meadowlands at the Brendan Byrne Arena. I parked outside that before WrestleMania 35 as it still stands and basically for musical acts to sound test in there 
It's always a good acoustic building, but that's pretty much all that it's being used for right now. Tuesday, the next night, they did Wrestling Challenge taping in Springfield, Massachusetts, and then Wednesday night in Portland, Maine at the Cumberland County Civic Center, and they drew 8769, a sellout crowd to that building, to which I have not been to in like 23, 24 years. I remember my youth hockey coach brought us up there for a game, which I think I was like 15 at the time, which is probably the only reason why any parents would have let us go with that guy, who was basically like the a much more blue-collar version of Gordon Bombay because we were just giving him shit saying that he was only coaching hockey because he had to do community service like in the Mighty Ducks. But this is a very eventful taping of three weeks of superstars and matches for prime time and so on. You have the Macho Man, Randy Savage, capturing the crown and becoming the Macho King from Hacksaw Jim Duggan, which moves him off the Hulk Hogan beat and on to a feud with Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Another sneaky, good feud. They had, a, they had a fun match at MSG somewhere along the line. The coronation of the Macho King is on this show. And this, I swear to God, I am I am coming out of my shoes at how excited I am to talk about this because there is nothing like a coronation of a heel king in wrestling yeah, you had the Hacksaw Jim Duggan one earlier in 89, but that was all sloppy. It was basically just Duggan and the Bushwhackers doing Jaeger shots in the ring. I mean, that's pretty much the way I remember it. Here, it's a little bit more respectful. You got Lanny Poffo there reading a proclamation, and then all the heels have to stand there, which I will get into when we get to that segment. Also on this show, they did, or at this taping, they did one of those Ultimate Warrior Andre matches, Andre the Giant matches that lasted 20 seconds, which antagonized crowds in some areas, mainly the ones where they would be the main event of the particular show because you felt ripped off with it only being 20 seconds. Here, as part of a grander TV taping, the 20-second thing you can get away with much easier. Coco Beware, even though he's still sliding down the card, mainly an opening match fixture on pay-per-views or or the dark match guy to get the crowd heated up, debuted his new song. Everybody get up, everybody get down. So if you're wondering when Coco changed songs from Piledriver to this, Piledriver goes from the fall of 87 up to here. And then from 89 to um, probably high energy is when he has this song in place. It's always interesting to me, when I was watching WrestleMania 3 several weeks ago, Coco Beware's song then was The Bird by Morris Day and The Time. And you can actually hear it on the network, which is funny to actually hear commercial music that is not overdubbed. It's probably because you could barely make out any of it, but it is definitely there. Jake the Snake Roberts returns after a lengthy hiatus from shortly after WrestleMania 5 with the injury angle with the Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase, who's going to be on the Brother Love Show on this episode of Superstars. But on the September 16th edition, Jake returned, vowed revenge on the Million Dollar Man. So this will be kind of DiBiase's reply to all of that. And also on this show, we got some old friends and a few new surprises. I always like when they do that with the <laughs> when they did like the Star Wars re-release or whatever in the late nineties, where it's like, oh yeah, we're gonna throw in a few extra, you know, whatevers in the movie and just kind of CGI them in just because we can, even though it's all kind of you know 
<laughs> kind of pointless or whatever. And I had mentioned this last week that this is a show that has interesting things kind of in the background of all of these matches, but not necessarily things that would have been apparent at the time, such as, as I mentioned, the Rougeau brothers are on this show, but they are facing Gary Wolf and Tony Durante, who would go on to become the Pitbulls in ECW years and years from now. So uh, people remember the Pitbulls. They, I think they had a match against the Brain Busters as well. But to see, you know, the young version of them as WWF enhancement talents is very, very interesting. We see a rematch of a Saturday Night's main event match from May of 89 with Superfly Jimmy Snuka taking on Boris Zukov. That is actually the opening match. And there's actually a very good reason why those two guys would be paired together. And speaking of a natural pairing, the American Dream Dusty Rhodes several months in to his run and wearing some interesting attire for his match, is taking on Dale Wolf, who had to change his name from Dusty Wolf, as he had been known for many, many years. Ted DiBiase is on the Brother Love show, so I'm very excited for some of the terminology that Brother Love might use towards Ted and Virgil. <laughs> I mean, you, you know what it is. I mean, Ted's been on the Brother Love show, and I've expressed that I love it when he says, Brother Virgil, and I really hope that he says it this time as well. Rick Rude is on the show, fresh off losing the Intercontinental title, but moving seamlessly into a main event level feud with Roddy Piper. And when I say main event, you may think, oh, it's probably just a B or C show main event, right? Well, on September 30th, 1989, it main evented in Madison Square Garden. By main event, I mean it was the last match on the show. I guess technically the Ultimate Warrior versus Andre the Giant was the main event. But I'm going to say that Piper Rude was the real main event because this is Piper's return after a four and a half year hiatus to Madison Square Garden. And it drew a sellout to the arena. So looking back, I'm glad that that was the case because that feud was so good playing out on primetime wrestling for the most part anyway. And also on this show, one of my all-time favorites, Bad News Brown in just a quick squash match. Doesn't have a whole lot going on, but that doesn't mean that Bad News Brown isn't going to entertain the hell out of me for the 90 seconds that he's on screen. So with all that in mind, let's jump into the show. This is episode number 113. I'm, I'm running out of years here to talk about the sports stuff. I might have to go back to talking about music, which I'll sprinkle into this because, you know, there's only so much sports stuff you can really play. But why don't I kick it off with a sports moment from the year 2013 for episode 113. So the Spurs foul. Should Miami go for the three right away? Just attack the basket. James catches, puts up the three. Won't go. Rebound, Bosch. Back out to Allen. History final. Bang! Tie game with five seconds remaining. Look, I'm not the biggest basketball guy in the world, but I enjoyed the hell out of that next generation big three that the Celtics had with Pierce, Garnett, and Ray Allen, who hit the tying shot, miraculous shot in Game 6 of the 2013 NBA Finals, keeping the Miami Heat alive against the Spurs. A couple good series in back-to-back years there. And the Heat would go on to win that 2013 title. So just remember that LeBron doesn't get that second title without Ray Allen there to hit the shot because LeBron had missed a three just before that. And that the whole beef with Ray Allen leaving the Celtics, signing with Miami for the 2013 season... 
and Kevin Garnett getting all mad, basically excommunicating him from all 2008 Celtics reunions. It's one of the rare athlete beefs where I kind of want to take Garnett's side, but I can see where Ray Allen is coming from because the Celtics didn't really want to bring him back because he was certainly getting up there in years. The Celtics were going to be transitioning anyway to a rebuild after the 2013 season, so it was going to be one more year at most. You might as well go to Miami and help them win a ring and come off the bench. But at the same time, you know, I see what Garnett is saying. They were a unit. They preached Ubuntu and, you know, teamwork and all the camaraderie and all that. And Ray Allen did kind of leave. So I have to remain neutral on that. And I can't take a side. All right, fine. Hold a gun to my head and force me to choose. I'm on Kevin Garnett's side because he didn't get catfished the way that Ray Allen did. I think it was 2017 when that whole thing went down. But you know what I'm not going to take sides against ever? is the concept of Vince McMahon introducing episodes of Superstars by telling us what's going on in the city that they're taping from or giving us historical tidbits about, in this case, Portland, Maine. Now, the week before this, on the September 23rd Superstars, he read the upcoming hockey schedule and at which point I ascended up to cloud nine as he told us that the Maine Mariners would be playing for the next three Saturdays or something like October 7th, 14th, and 21st, and that the next night on October 1st, the Boston Bruins would play an exhibition game against the New York Islanders. Now, I can never find out the results of preseason games, so I'm just going to assume that the Bruins ended up prevailing in that one. But here, Vince gives us a little information about the beautiful city of Portland, Maine. Portland is the largest city in Maine, and it's located on the picturesque Casco Bay. Portland is the birthplace of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and it's also the home of the Portland Headlights, the first lighthouse authorized by the U.S. and the oldest in continuous use. You know, Maine was starting to get a lot more love in 89 because that was when George H.W. Bush became president and he would always go to Kennebunkport, Maine for his vacations. His son would always go to Crawford, Texas, but Kennebunkport was the Bush vacation site that he would go to, so it would be often in the news. Now, Portland, since then, by the way, I probably prefer Bar Harbor, all things being equal, but Bar Harbor, Maine is a lot harder to get through to. But there's there's fewer people there. So if you're into that, the Bar Harbor is definitely the place. Also the home of Acadia National Park. But Portland, since then, a lot of great breweries in that city, especially Allagash, which I cannot recommend highly enough. Allagash White, perhaps the most versatile beer that you can get in a wide variety of places. Of course, I ordered it when I went out for Thai food the other night, and I didn't finish it because I had been pretty much drinking beer the entire day, and I was starting to get a little bit sick of it. So our hosts are, of course, Vince McMahon and Jesse the Body Ventura. And Jesse's pumping the fist towards the green screen, which is another thing that I always enjoy, where they pretend like they're actually in the arena, but they're standing in front of a green screen, but yet they get the crowd to do the chant for Jesse. So Jesse looks towards the green screen, starts pumping his fist. Now, you could consider Jesse a bit of a revolutionary figure when it comes to wrestling broadcasting for his work as a color commentator, but he decided to take the gimmick of another revolutionary for some of his attire, mainly his hat. You know, McMahon, everybody likes being the Che Guevara look. Che Guevara. Wasn't he Sonny King's old tag team partner? 
Now, I swear that he says Sonny King. The audio can be a little bit hard to make out, but Sonny King was a tag team champion in the Worldwide Wrestling Federation in 1972, but actually teaming with Chief J. Strongbow and not Jay Guevara. I don't, I don't know if that was some sort of rib or if, like, Jay Strongbow was some sort of strident anti-communist and that was, you know, a way to rib him or something like that. But anyway, we why don't we just go to our first match? which is Superfly Jimmy Snuka taking on Boris Zukov in an AWA reunion from 86 and 87 and also from Mid-Atlantic dating to 1981 when Jim Nelson was the private Jim Nelson under the tutelage of Sergeant Slaughter and Snuka was just sort of hanging around there before he would come into the WWF in 82. So you say, why is Boris... Paired, as I mentioned, they were on Saturday night's main event against each other back in May. Why is he being paired with Jimmy Snuka once again? And it's because he actually looked to Snuka as something of a mentor. Now, whether that's wise or not, I don't know. I don't think he's using him as a mentor for outside the ring. Because in the interview that he did with the two-man power trip, podcast talked about how he learned a lot from snooker in terms of you know making everything count in the ring working the crowd how a facial expression can kind of you know help you in the course of a match so he kind of i guess there's a certain chemistry with these two guys that way even though you know it's not like they're going to be going 15 minutes here it's just something where I guess they're comfortable with one another. Now you, you you wonder where Boris, where is Nikolai Volkov at this point? Well, WWF scholars of the year 1989 know that Nikolai disappears at some point in March, and we don't see him again until around this point at the end of September. So they're they're apart for about six months. 89, pretty bad year for the Soviets overall. Whether you're talking about the Bolsheviks. In the WWF, we were talking about Nikita Koloff didn't exactly have the greatest year either. His wife passing away. Ivan Koloff has faded away from the scene. The Eastern Europe is crumbling. The Berlin Wall comes tumbling down in November. Not not the best of times for the Soviets or Soviet heels in general. When Snooker comes out, Vince says that Jesse calls him an animal, and Jesse's retort is that, no, I call him a tree climber, which made me wonder, which one is actually worse? I mean, they're both pretty bad, but calling somebody a tree climber versus calling them an animal, I guess tree climber is more, I guess, kind of distinct, I guess. But anyway, Jim Nelson had pointed out in that interview, the thing that was striking my ear was how you know how well he talking about snooker and how well put together he is you know in terms of you know he's a very strong guy you think of him more for like the splash off the top rope and his agility the leapfrogs and all of that but the other thing from the interview that I kept picking up on was he kept saying Jimmy 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 and I never really think of snooker superfly snooker as being named Jimmy you know like my friend Jim I mean you don't you don't think of him as a Jimmy. See, white people, y'all can't hear Jimmy. You, 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 you listen. And the point, too, about not considering him a Jimmy is when he's introduced for the Royal Rumble during one of those great Vince McMahon reads through, Vince would say, the Superfly, and wouldn't refer to him as Jimmy Snooker. 
It was probably 91 at that point, so he's well past his sell-by date. But yeah, he's he's definitely not a Jimmy, even though that is his actual real-life name. Now, poor Boris, he's waving the flag as Snooker comes in. He doesn't get to sing the anthem, and he's waving the flag like those dudes before the Bruins home playoff games get like the player flags that say like Pasternak 88 on it that my i always look to see which player we get in my section and for this entire playoffs it's been kevin miller number 86 and he's injured and he's not even in it so i don't know kind of kind of a downgrade this year not, not a lot of respect being shown to my section quite frankly so snooker gets the flag and he clotheslines zukov with it which was actually kind of funny and it made me think of what what are the relations between the nation of fiji and the Soviet Union, at least dating back to the 70s. They did establish diplomatic relations with each other. I believe it was 1974, but really nothing kind of happened. It wasn't like Fiji was going to be a player during the Cold War or anything, unless you wanted to have military bases there, but they seem to be just kind of non-aligned, you know, kind of far away from everything. There is actually a Wikipedia page, albeit brief, on Russo... Fijian relations. I'm not talking about Vince Russo. I'm talking about Russia. Like I said, established in the 70s, just a whole lot of nothing. Jesse says that after witnessing this display with the flag, and he calls for the disqualification, he says he might have to become a referee again. And I love Jesse when he would call back to the one time he got to referee at SummerSlam back in 88. Snooker finally puts down the flag, hits a chop off an Irish whip, and then Boris begs off snooker chokes him again a very familiar scene that jimmy snooker approaching somebody and then choking them <clears throat> yes so anyway boris comes <laughs> he answers with a back rake so he's pulling out all the general adnan offense that he can and we get a crisscross i don't know how we were blessed to get such a move in this match but snooker decides to go diagonal at one point and then hits kind of a flying forearm slash chop and then follows up with a vertical suplex to set up only one thing, the big superfly splash, which he connects on. Still looks good in 1989. I was kind of disappointed in the lack of flash bulbs from cameras in the Cumberland County Civic Center, but it'll have to do. And he picks up the win there. A nice squash to reestablish Schnooka. Schnooka. Why do I call him Schnooka? It's Snooka. Snooka? No, no. Ventura would call him Snooka as kind of a thing, you know, when he's not saying racist things. So I'd rather he call him Snooka, who had a feud with the Honky Tonk Man during much of the summer. They don't end up meeting at SummerSlam, but quite frankly, that's fine. I mean, it's the way they did things. that didn't really align with the house show programs. And his feud with Honky Tonk Man is not mentioned here necessarily, although they would meet up in Madison Square Garden with Snooker making his return on this evening to a building that he once was the king of back in 83, jumping off the cage against Don Morocco. His SummerSlam match is against Ted DiBiase. He loses by countout, which, so he doesn't, you know, take the fall. He gets to do the Superfly Splash on Virgil afterwards. So he thought, well, why is he back here? Well, it was basically a game of keep away. We don't want Snooker to go to WCW and perhaps give him a bump. Although, I do think between that and Bing John Stud and some other ones, Vince, his game of keep away, like, well, I can't, I can't let this guy go to the other side and help them. Sometimes you're better off just letting the guy walk because 
there really wasn't a whole lot to contribute other than people getting nostalgic for the great Superfly splash finish. Full count, runner on the move. Alvarez to Tuiasa Sopo. He got him, struck him out. Nine no-hit innings, but no no-hitter yet. Henderson Alvarez has gone nine. The Tigers don't have a hit, but Miami doesn't have a run. Bases loaded, two outs, bottom nine, a no-hitter in the balance. Dodds, check swing, it gets away! Here comes Stanton! It's a no-hitter! Henderson Alvarez! Miami wins it! That was one of the more bizarre no-hitters in baseball history. On the last day of the 2013 season, Henderson Alvarez of the Miami Marlins. No hits, the Detroit Tigers. A very good team who would go to the ALCS that year. Of course, in September, you see a lot more no-hitters because you have call-ups, and guys are pretty much just ready to sort of pack it in. But what was interesting about that, as you heard, it was 0-0. He pitches nine no-hit innings, and then they win on a walk-off wild pitch, which I'm pretty sure that that's never happened in any other no-hitter in history. That year, 2013, also featured the genesis of the what would become my MLB wins pool, which for that year was a simple bet that arose in April at Bukowski's Bar between my friend Merrill and I, where I bet that the Houston Astros would win more games than the Miami Marlins that year. And then, of course, the Marlins had Jose Fernandez and ended up winning, I think, 61 games, and the Astros only won 51. So it didn't end up being close, but then eventually it became a much greater wins pool the following year, wherein I group the teams in top 10 teams in the league, middle 10 teams, and bottom 10 teams. You have to pick one from each for to count for wins and one from each to count for losses so like this year i have the houston astros counting for wins from the top 10 but i have the cleveland indians counting for losses so i'm kind of rooting against the indians rooting for the astros and the whole thing is kind of weird over these last few years because it's generally the guy who makes the fewest mistakes who ends up winning it's not like oh you made some great picks no it's who screwed up the least Who didn't pick the Orioles to win in 2018? Who didn't pick the Red Sox to lose in 2018? Which are actual things that happened, and I was one of those. And I won't say which one, because I'm sure it would come as a great surprise. So up next, we have the Brother Love Show with his dear, close, personal, longtime friend in real life, Mr. Ted DiBiase, the benefactor of the Million Dollar Man, as the origin story of that character goes, that... Ted kind of paved the way with his money, as you could explain any WWF storyline from 1987 through 1993. You could just explain it with DiBiase's money, particularly during this time period. So he welcomes Brother Million and Brother Virgile, but unfortunately he calls him Brother Ted, at which point I just start booing at the television screen, or more accurately, my the screen of my phone. But he refers to Jake Roberts as Brother Snake, so why does why does he get to be Brother Snake, and why is Brother Ted, Brother Ted, why can't he be Brother Million? So this is DiBiase's summer of, I put that guy out and getting heat that way, rather than him having a consistent feud with one guy. He had matches with Dusty Rhodes on house shows when Dusty arrived back in June. I know there's one at the Boston Garden, the last televised show from Nesson. And as I mentioned, Jake was on the Brother Love show a couple of weeks before this, making his return, saying that he was obsessed 
with getting at Ted DiBiase and getting revenge for this injury. And these two guys, they they know they go way back. Now th- this is the WWF universe, so we're not counting anything that happened in Mid South. But these two guys are definitely linked in that sort of way. You know, brother Love, I used to have a great deal of respect for Jake the Snake Roberts in the fact that he was an intelligent, cunning, devious individual. Much like myself. You see, I have all of those qualities. But Jake Roberts, you have totally lost your mind. Well, you know, that type of thing can happen when you ingest the kind of substances that Jake Roberts may have done over the years. I don't know. I'm just saying. Oh, wait. He's not talking about that? Okay. Well, you know, Brother Love, when a man is obsessed, he can't see to the left or the right. All he sees is straight ahead. He has tunnel vision. Let me ask you something, Jake. When you step back in the ring with me, the man who knows your injury, the man who put that injury there, what do you think I'm going to do? What part of your anatomy do you think I'm going to go after first? (laughs) So go ahead, Jake. Wrestling tights back on and lace up your boots. Walk down to that ring and climb in with the million dollar man one last time. <laughs> one last time, huh? I'm, I'm not love, so sure about I that. I love his laugh, Isn't it heartwarming? Well, Ted had the best heel laugh in the business, and it's a shame that when he did the Royal Rumble 94 and commentary alongside Vince McMahon, that they couldn't have a laugh off at some point or another. I have to admit, that would warm my heart, as Jesse put it there. And also, I think it would be better than anything DiBiase did after he retired from in-ring competition in 1993, because his entire time as a manager and the few times that he would be on commentary or hosting WWF Mania, uh, it's kind of a giant stink bomb, quite frankly, for a guy that you'd think would be good at it. But it's just that his character, the Million Dollar Man character, is a character for an active wrestler. And for whatever reason, he wasn't able to carry it over to being a manager. And it's one of those mysteries that I've never quite been able to figure out why a guy as talented who got professional wrestling as well as Ted DiBiase couldn't become a good manager. The Toronto Maple Leafs, unless they suffer a colossal collapse, are going to eliminate the Boston Bruins. 14 minutes is a lot of hockey, but Boston is going to have to score as many goals in that stretch of time as it has in the last three games. Hey, Rocky! Watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. Lucic charges down the left wing, throws it right in front, and he scores! 10.42 to go! Bergeron to Chara, the one-timer, save, rebound, Lucic scores! 1.22 to go! Back to Yager, over to Bergeron, down to the circle to Krejci, 53 seconds to go. Bergeron shots, go! Bergeron dies it! Hearts and Lions, they come from three down! 
drive. Bergeron on one timer. Save Reimer. Rebound loose at the top of the crease. Rashad score! Bergeron! Bergeron! In game seven! And the Bruins win the series! I actually remember my changing emotions at that game as the three goals are scored on the first one. I was like, thanks for getting our hopes up. And then when the second goal was scored, I was like, maybe you're going to make it interesting after all. And then the third goal was scored. I nearly fainted from the shock of that because it was crazy that the puck actually got through because you got six foot nine Zidane Chara standing in front of the net. You figured that the puck might just go off him and go wide or something, but snuck its way through. <laughs> they win it over time. But I don't know. The thing I always remember about that game is the fact that my friend Merrill got stuck in Chicago and couldn't get back from a wedding in time to, to actually be at that game he was on a plane until it was four to one and then when he got off the plane is when the comeback began another another interesting thing is Milan Lucic gets a lot of grief from fans of the Edmonton Oilers because he gets paid a lot of money and doesn't really do a whole lot these days but when somebody asked me who is your favorite hockey player of all time I say Milan Lucic in the third period in overtime of game seven of the Toronto Boston series in 2013 like very oddly specific on that but I do have a lot to draw on just that whole the whole memory just makes me very very misty eyed it's it's very dusty in the room when that happens so it's appropriate now that we go to the WWF Battle of the Dusties of 1989 that you completely forgot about as we got Dusty Rhodes taking on Dale Wolf, forced to change his name from Dusty Wolf. It's at some point in June. It appears to be on the June 27th taping where he has to go by Dale, which makes sense because now Dusty is starting to do TV tapings at that point. But just kind of funny to here to see these two guys together in the same ring of course we saw dusty wolf a couple of weeks ago in memphis but of course everybody remembers number one when the american dream shows up in the wwf the pulp polka dot thing and in listening to this bruce pritchard podcast which is clearly winding down now i mean they're they're reaching an end game because they're doing topics like they're kind of blowing through topics like bill dundee is booking the show or something but pritchard's always like oh yeah we never did anything to try and make fun of dusty Rhodes or embarrass him in any way well i would instruct anybody who believes that to actually watch this match this battle of the dusties because we get the unveiling of the dusty Rhodes uniform system all right get set to play Yeah, look at those polka dots, pal. But in this case, it's not the story of what he's wearing. The the main story is that Dusty Rhodes is wearing red trunks with yellow polka dots. It is really insane. It looks like Dusty was driving to the taping and he got into a three-car accident with a ketchup tanker and a truck that had a little bit of mustard that spilled, you know, some of it on top afterwards. Like, the the mustard truck kind of came in afterwards and not much of it leaked, but, like, you know, a few, a few drops did. However, this is making me uh, <laughs> kind of want to take Dusty Rhodes back in time for a dream match. Dusty Rhodes in this gear versus Cheeseburger. 
It's really also insane that Dusty is wearing red and yellow the same as Hulk Hogan. You know, you, I, I don't, I don't know if you'd necessarily make the comparison between the two here, but they took great pains to keep those guys apart. Like they're very rarely on the same show, at least on the house show results that I've seen. You never see Hulk Hogan teaming up with Dusty Rhodes because you you might have had a situation where Dusty was going to try to outshine him or show him up in some way. But I can't recall many other matches where he's actually wearing red. When he comes in for those house show matches at the beginning, he's wearing the trunks that you're familiar with, with the DR on them that are just plain black. And then the black and with the yellow polka dot, which he'd wear much of the time. And then when we get to the Dusty No Longer Gives a Shit phase of 1990, he's wearing... At times, polka dots that are like the same color as his trunks, but also he just goes back to the DR stuff by like around the time of Survivor Series 1990, the point when he starts losing to Virgil in 40 seconds on some of the house shows. But this outfit, so completely ridiculous that you know Vince McMahon's going to comment on it. looking on looks like an old shower curtain i used to have oh really i love that five second pause between vince and jesse i bet you wish you had the guts to wear that i think that's ugly even by shower curtain standards i mean i know some people are unique in how they dress i I know don cherry the hockey commentator up in canada he's known for his flamboyant suits and he'll sometimes be at like a fabric store and he'll say you know he'll see this particularly garish thing he's like i want that fabric and the person in the store would be like, Sir, these are drapes. And he'd be like, No, no, no. But I have to admit, there's a certain uniqueness to that whole thing. And that's not the whole Dusty Ensemble that I've mentioned here. He's also got the hat that he stole from Slick and the nightstick as well. That was pretty much his first order of business when he appeared on TV, was swiping that from the boss man after a squash match and then appearing on the Brother Love Show and giving what I like to call the other hard times promo when he talks about how he he doesn't do hard time. So like, Dust, in 85, you were talking about doing hard time. You, you had hard times on your family. And now you're saying you don't do hard time. Which one is it? Is this a promotional-based thing? And, of course, Dusty was at the doctor last week. Bossman has an inset promo, pretty generic. He's just pissed off about having his nightstick stolen. And this is a very natural feud between these guys, starting with the fact that when Dusty was the booker, he saw Ray Trailer take a slingshot suplex from Tully Blanchard and say, wow, we can actually make something out of this guy, a big 300-pound dude who can actually take a move like that. He'd later go on to take a superplex off the top of the cage from Hulk Hogan on multiple occasions. But also, the characters, such as the officer of the law, because they seem to be evolving it from the prison guard to just more of a generic officer, versus a guy who has 100 jobs that is completely unregulated. Like, oh, he works at the gas station. Oh, he sells pizza. Is he fully bonded by the city, all of these dusty businesses? These are questions, I guess, to ask for another time. As they're discussing, Dusty stomps on the hands of poor Dale Wolf as Howard Finkel does a read for the MSG show coming up. It's always interesting because I don't usually get to see these New York copies of these older shows. They almost tend to be Boston or international in nature where they're not promoting a specific show. 
but Dusty kind of shaking his ass in the ring, which, of course, no doubt goaded by Vince, Jesse takes a shot at the American Dream. I like the Dream style, you know, I mean, uh, fluid motion in there. I like his body. Yeah, I mean, you can tell years and years of pumping iron, taking those vitamins, and that's what you look like when you're done with all of that. Well, yes, Jesse, that is what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to lay down and die in the professional wrestling sense. Also, he called himself Dusty after Dusty Rhodes was already around. I think Dusty itself is a name that is unique enough that maybe you wouldn't have two of them in wrestling. I mean, I know it's not like the the name Alex or something like that. You you can have you can have more than one Alex, in my opinion. But Dusty, there's really not many of those. In fact, I'm trying to think of any Dusties in my life that I know of, and I, I, I can't think of one. In fact, the only other Dusty that I can think of, and I've mentioned this before, is the other Dusty Rhodes, who was a baseball player, who was a hero in the 1954 World Series. So anyway, the Dream's offense here is mostly elbows, and the big elbow finishes the elbow drop. I mean, go ahead and watch this match and then try to claim that they weren't making fun of Dusty Rhodes with the thing that they're saying about him, the fact that he got into a traffic accident with a ketchup truck on the way there. It's it's all so insane, but the craziest part about it is that Dusty Rhodes, of course, being the man that he is, somehow managed to make it work in the end for what he was, because he was not going to be a top guy at the age he was at. I think he was set in the correct role where he was going to be and I think that they wanted maybe to make him a little bit different uh, from what he was just to kind of differentiate it and say okay he's not going to be challenging for the world title in this promotion so he's going to be a step down but just you know enjoy him for what he is but now Jesse and Vince continue the conversation on kind of his psyche and like the whole common man thing as like why would you be proud of being a common man It's always nice to hear libertarian Vince sneak out every once in a while. Be who you want to be, as if he's like running Pride Week or something. And I have to admit, there are a lot of comparisons. Having been in Toronto when they had Pride Week back in 20, I think it was 2015, and just seeing everybody there, having a good time, dressing as they want. A lot of similarities between that vibe and the WWF of the late 80s. As they would often do in this time period, they would do a courtesy of Coliseum Home Video, distributor of SummerSlam 89. They showed the clip from the end of Dusty Rhodes' match against the Honky Tonk Man, where Jimmy Hart took the guitar and ended up hitting the Honky Tonk Man by accident. And we get that interview with Sean Mooney, which I have to say, it's beautiful, 
It's a nuanced performance by the honky-tonk man, you know, with head injuries, because head injuries are funny back then, anyway. But having Dusty Rhodes' theme playing in the background kind of enhances the entire thing. But it's certainly, to my mind, the last great thing that the honky-tonk man ever did in the WWF, that... It's really not a lot that he did directly after dropping the Intercontinental title. Uh, and I say directly because when he faces Hulk Hogan for the WWF title on Saturday Night's Main Event in July of 89, when Jesse Ventura refers to the Honky Tonk Man as, quote, the number one contender, <laughs> I laugh uproariously every time I see that. But hey, at least he's very much into that character still, even if it's not having the same effect. And speaking of that, up next, we have Bad News Brown, who is nearing the end of his second year in the WWF, and you're starting to get diminishing returns, but that doesn't mean I love him any less. That Arsenio Hall episode that I keep talking about relentlessly, which I just do the damn Arsenio show because I want to talk about that so badly. That's not until 1990. Bad News didn't have a whole lot going on in the middle of 89. Yeah, he gets, you know, a little play with Hogan around this time. But earlier in the summer, he had this short-lived tag team with the Brooklyn Brawler. Because you don't think of Bad News as ever being in a team. And that was just kind of a two-week angle where they split up right away. And then Bad News beats the crap out of the Brawler on one of the TVs. I believe it was on primetime in June of 89. So, you know, you get the little bit of the Hogan feud and then roll him into later in 89. You're still kind of keeping him a threat, but he's certainly not as serious as he was the year before. But the character is still good, and luckily for me, we get an inset promo, which is so great, in part because it you could say that it's somewhat autobiographical. Let me tell you, Big Belly Sharecroppers, what Bad News Brown is all about. Bad News Brown is destructive. Bad News Brown is mean. Bad News Brown hates everybody. Bad News Brown will not and cannot be beat. And I'm coming after you, Hulk Hogan, and your belt. Me, not only was Bad News a scary dude, but also a bit of an educator as well, because who really thinks of sharecropping? So you get beer-bellied sharecropper. Well, beer-bellied obviously is calling people overweight. It's a very creative way of calling people fat. That's fine. Sharecropping, the actual definition is a tenant farmer who gives a cut of their crops to the landowner as rent. It's customarily thought of as something from the post-Civil War period. I know I sound like like Ron Burgundy now bullshit you, but this is actually true. So it says, During Reconstruction, former slaves and many small white farmers became trapped in a new system of economic exploitation known as sharecropping. Lacking capital and land of their own, former slaves were forced to work for large landowners. Ultimately, sharecropping emerged as a sort of compromise. And I'm pretty sure that they didn't get health insurance either, so it's kind of like working for WWE. So Finkel, he does the read-through, not of the Madison Square Garden show, but of the Nassau Coliseum show coming up on October 20th. This is the beauty of having a New York TV show from this era because you got to plug the MSG, you got to plug the Meadowlands, you got to plug Nassau Coliseum, and it's all kind of different in all three venues. And this one does not last very long, as... Jesse points out when Bad News gets in the ring, he just doesn't waste any time. He doesn't wait for introductions. He's taken on a fellow by the name of Elmer Johnson, 
who I don't know much about, but I do know that he is the greatest Elmer ever to set foot in a WWF ring. Ghetto Blaster finishes at about a minute 15. And bad news, as Jesse points out, is very gentle with the cover because he rolls him over and puts the foot on the chest with the fist in the air, a la la John Carlos and Tommy Smith of the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. Of course, bad news Brown, Alan Coge... Also an Olympian in 1976 in judo at the Montreal Olympics. And by the way, I think that Bad News Brown was certainly ahead of his time because in the Attitude Era, he certainly would have been an interesting character. But here at this point, it's important to remember that by the time he hits the WWF in the late 80s, he's he's in his 40s at this point. So that's why it starts to break down a little bit physically for him. But he's a brawler, so his limitations... You know, there are limitations physically, but the character itself, it's not asking him to do a whole heck of a lot. I I, I just, I just love him. And where can I go to express my love for Bad News Brown? But ProWrestlingOnly.com, where you can explore other podcasts like Worldcast, Military Industrial Suplex, the new podcast coming to the feed shortly called Days of Thunder. I have to be careful not to call it Daves of Thunder, the comedy podcast that I enjoy very much. This is a podcast, as you might expect, reviewing old episodes of WCW Thunder from its run in from 1998 through 2001. I'm pretty sure they didn't cancel it before because I think there was a Thunder right before the last Nitro. But anyway, before I lose track of my live read, uh, you could go <laughs> match reviews, features, and retrospectives such as the Walking in Memphis series. I hope you are going to ProWrestlingOnly.com and learning about our greatest territory of all time. Reviews of wrestling books, video games, matches, playlists, wrestler appearances, and non-wrestling TV shows, movies, and more. Join the conversation by signing up at the PWO forums. Online for over a decade with over 2,000 registered members and a lot of threads about a lot of various topics that isn't just Memphis wrestling, but basically th- th- there's a lot of stuff there. You know, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a household name. It's a vibrant community, and if you want to discuss the match in the Match Discussion Archive, take a deep dive in microscope form, or discuss more general topics from wrestling's past and present, check all of this out and more at ProWrestlingOnly.com. And yes, there is a podcast form where you can critique my live reads of these. God, it's get, I feel like I'm regressing and I'm getting worse by the week. So we go right into the event center, just to get out of that any way I can. And as I said before, now we got to go back, plug the Madison Square Garden show taking place on that night, September 30th, 1989. You know, Sean Mooney runs down some of the card, Brain Busters versus Demolition. That title change going back to Demolition, it's going to be coming up soon. The taping is going to take place in early October, but it's not going to air until the November sweeps period. Roddy Piper making his return to MSG, taking on Ravishing Rick Rude. But the main event, that as they are promoting it, even though it took place in the middle of the show, Andre, who is billing himself as the ultimate giant, taking on the ultimate warrior. And this is during the bizarre period where the warrior was doing weird stuff with the enhancement talents after the match, either carrying them back to the locker room or stuffing them under the ring. I didn't quite get that. But on the flip side, you get the novel sight of Andre the Giant wearing face paint as he came out wearing sort of an Ultimate Warrior-style look on the Brother Love Show the week before this on Superstars. So he's there with Bobby Heenan with his face painted up 
And, well, let's see if I have to break out the Andre to English Dictionary. Warrior, do you really think you can walk around with the intercontinental title that belongs to no you? No way. No, you can't, pal. No way can you walk around as a champion. This bell is belong the Bobby and their family, and I will get it back. And, Warrior, I guarantee you something. You won't be able to walk around because this, is the ultimate giant. This is your ultimate challenge. <laughs> oh, Warrior, you will pay. And the way we will pay, gonna make you suffer so much. You never go forget me. Never, never forget. Never will forget me. That wasn't so bad until Andre got a little repetitive there at the end. I think he might have been sober, by which I mean he only had three barrels of wine that day before actually recording that. But the thing that was gratifying for me to see was that Andre is still in the black singlet because it's when he changes to the blue one, there's no turning back and things are just too far gone at that point. But he is still cutting a rather frightening figure, at least to young me, in part because he's starting to not give a crap about his sideburns, and he's got those puffy things off the side of his face. So conversely, we have his a future rival of Andre in Demolition, who are challenging the Brain Busters for the tag team titles. And Smash, he's still rightfully pissed at Telly Blanchard about the chair shot from when the Brain Busters won the title. If you recall, in winning that third fall, Tully Blanchard hit Smash in the back of the head with a chair, and fairly stiffly as well. Well, Brain Busters, it's about time. You've won the belts, and now you've signed the contract. you put your name on the line. The belts are at stake, but you've made a big mistake. Right, Smash? That's right, a big mistake. Yeah, you're a couple of bad dudes, are you? Well, maybe not. Maybe the chair's bad. Maybe Andre the Giant's bad. Well, next time, they ain't gonna be there. So we're gonna see how bad you really are. Bring that in, and we're gonna get those belts. I do wish Smash a lot of luck in his efforts to repossess the tag team titles. Although, instead of calling them championships back then, they're calling them belts. Why is Smash so obsessed with getting a belt? Well, because he needs it to hold up his golf pants. Stridex presents Great Wipeouts. Shawn Michaels, Marty Jannetty, The Rockers, executing their spectacular moves in concert. This popular pair rock and roll their opponents to score another hit. Stridex and other acne medication used to be all over wrestling shows, but now if you watch Raw and SmackDown, I'm not sure if any of those actually air on there. Did Proactive just kind of kill them off or whatever? As, as somebody who took Accutane for two months back in the day, whenever I see those commercials, I always feel bad because I remember how awful I felt in those two months taking Accutane where it just dried out my face and I was just miserable. The other thing I remember about Accutane, and I know the whole thing was Stridex, but it got me onto Accutane, is that they recommended that you, when you take the pill that you take it with milk. I thought that that was rather unusual, and I I can't remember the reason why. I should probably look into that, but I'd prefer to forget my days of taking Accutane back in 1997. So up next, guys who became kind of a big deal by 1997, Tony Durante and Gary Wolf, the Pitbulls, but they're in their enhancement talent phase because they only broke into the business around 1988, and they're taking on the fabulous Rougeau brothers. 
From Montreal to Memphis, parlez-vous Francais? Tell all the girls the Rougeau's on their way. Once again, another entity moving from Canada to Memphis, just like the Vancouver Grizzlies later on. But back to the Pitbulls. They were actually not that far away because you, you could see something in them and they do get a little offense in this match. Because by 1990... They're in South Atlantic Pro Wrestling, and yeah, I know, you can roll your eyes, it, it's, it, it never really amounted to much, but they won the tag team titles there from the Nasty Boys before the Nasties departed for WCW NWA to take on the Steiner Brothers at Halloween Havoc 90 and impress the WWF enough that they would wind up there within weeks. Then they would lose the titles to the Fantastics by the end of 1990. The uh, all-Fulton version of the Fantastics. Tommy Rogers not around in that team at that point. By the time I started watching ECW in 1997, the Pitbulls pretty much were not a team anymore. You, I think due to one of the guys hurt his neck. I want to say it was Pitbull number one. But you didn't really, you would see them in singles action, but they were not really a team by 1997. Tony Durante, he died in 2003, age 36, so he's definitely on the list of people that we lost far too soon. As for the Rougeau brothers, this is the period where they have the marathon matches with the Rockers that are basically 60-minute Ironman matches where whoever scores the most pinfalls, and these would often go into overtime, so clearly that is why Shawn Michaels had an advantage at WrestleMania 12 is because he had been in this type of match before. Although that being said, I think Bret Hart may have had some against Ric Flair on house shows in 1992, at least when Ric Flair wasn't addled from that ear injury that he had. The great thing about this Rougeau gimmick, other than the theme song, as great as that is, it's probably a top five WWF theme song of all time. The notion of, yes, they're moving to the United States and they love America, but we're all disingenuous because they're, they're carrying very little flags. Like they're not, they're not like the U.S. Express carrying this giant flag to the ring. They're, it's just these little, little things that you'd have people in the crowd waving you know at a political rally or something like that it's when you refer to them as immigrants and it sets up where the heels are pro-immigrant and the baby faces are anti-immigrant and that always struck me as a weird dichotomy and it is so it is here with vince and jesse talking about it i can't believe mcmahon that you're so down on immigration that's not it just down on the Rougeaux. I mean, how do you think your father and your father's father got here? They were immigrants, just like the Rougeaux. Yeah. I love how Vince doesn't really have much of a retort to that because you can't say, because they're smug assholes, Jesse, is why I don't want them here. I'm pro-immigration mainly because people from around the world come in to the United States of America. They tend to bring the best parts of their cuisine with them. So if you just look at it from a food perspective, it always ends up paying off for us in the end. And people worry too much about like other stuff like, oh, they're going to come in and commit crimes. Like, no, no, probably not. Like, they're, they're trying to get away from a place that was not as good, and they're going to be very grateful to be here. So Jacques who is eternally grateful for everything, shakes Wolf's hand, who is on the apron, just kind of standing there minding his own business, just kind of grabs his hand, and Durante is in there, 
And he's wondering if he should shake Jock's hand. So he's doing that stupid game show contestant thing that I always talk about where he's like looking around. Like when you're on the price is right, like, what should I bid? Like, yeah, you want to look to a crowd of 600 people to, you know, figure things out for you. So Durante just gets slapped for his trouble and Jacques just smugly walks away to the corner to hug Raymond. But Durante, to his credit, attacks from behind. And when he gets Irish whipped, he flips out of a backdrop. Now, he doesn't stick the landing. He doesn't land on his feet, but he hits Jacques with a big clothesline and ends up knocking him out of the ring. And outside, we get the Rougeaus hugging for the second time. Do they have the best heel tag team hug of any team? I'm thinking it's got to be them versus the Midnight Express where they would do the hug and, you know, probably to tune up the crowd like, oh, you're gay or whatever, like from the way people used to be back then. I mean, I do that with my friend Merrill at every single Bruins game. I call him Raymond, even, in tribute to this. So I guess it means that I have the Rougeaus ahead of the Midnights. I mean, I'm sorry, the Midnight Express cannot rank first in everything, okay? You're just going to have to settle for second for a heel hug that annoys the crowd at the beginning of the match. And they do have an inset promo that is rather bizarre because it almost seems like a complete non-sequitur. And even Jesse and Vince talking about it afterwards really can't figure it out. Hey, Raven, what's that saying daddy say all the time? Oh, you remember, Jacques. Good things come to those who wait. That's right. Rockers, we're the best team around in the World Wrestling Federation. And by now, we know there's nothing that you can do about it. <laughs> Did you understand that? Yeah, good things come to those who wait. Yeah, I, mean, I understood that, but what was the correlation? But they're the best around, and, uh, you know, the Rockers will just have to wait. I wish I could say that I could discern some kind of greater meaning out of what the Rougeaus said, but I can't. All I can think of is, good things come to those who wait, is the Heinz ketchup motto from the advertisements in the 1980s. And then also for Guinness beer in the 90s, they used that because, of course, when you pour the Guinness on draft, or even if you pour it from a bottle into a glass, you have to kind of wait for it to settle. I don't know. Maybe they had, like, burgers with ketchup on it and a Guinness right before that. Although, I guess this would have predated the Guinness thing. I don't I don't, I don't, understand it at all. But Raymond, he struts in the ring again. And then, for whatever reason, he acts like a person opposite the hard camera threw something from the crowd and hit him in the eye. And he kind of bends down as, as if he, he's hurt or something. But this distracts everybody beautifully so that Jock sneaks in from behind and hits, I believe it's Wolf in there at this point, who then is then taken into the corner and choked with the tag rope by Jacques as Raymond <laughs> distracts the referee. This is some good stuff from the Rougeaus in spite of their promo that I do not understand. Big flying back elbow by Jacques Rougeau that he was very good at doing. You'd see Blackjack Mulligan do it in some of his WWF runs as well, but Jacques was also very good. He'd break that out when he was the Mountie as well. And Raymond back in, he locks in the Boston Crab, and this is actually the finisher. They're not doing the Rougeau bomb at this point because it is kind of a babyface finisher when you think about it, the high-flying and exciting. The Boston Crab... He, he drew Durante into the ring, and the referee goes to stop him, and Jacques sneaks over as Ramon has Wolf in the Boston Crab, hits the knee drop to the back, so you kind of double the back pain on that one. And that is how they pick up the win in this one. And it makes me think of their team 
with Rick Martel at SummerSlam taking on Tito Santana and the Rockers. A, something of a hidden gem on that SummerSlam card, that six-man. It's a nice, I want to say it's about an eight-minute sprint that ends with, I believe, Rick Martel picking up the pin over Marty Jannetty in that one. But that team really makes a lot of sense on the heel side because you have the Rougeaus, these guys from Quebec who moved to the United States and have made that a central part of their gimmick, and Rick Martel, who is about to become a model, and in kayfabe, his hometown moves from Quebec because he used to have the little Canadian flag on his jacket when he was in Strike Force, and then he's all of a sudden billed from Cocoa Beach, Florida. When So both, everybody, he, like the Rougeaus, moved to the American South. They're Quebec, guys who moved out of Quebec to the American South. There is a new tweet from the Boston Police Department in capital letters, the word CAPTURED followed by three exclamation marks. It goes on to say, the hunt is over, the search is done, the terror is over, and justice has won. Suspect in custody. Certainly never going to forget that week of the Boston Marathon bombing in the aftermath and trying to track down the suspect and just the uncertainty for that 72 to 86 hour, whatever it was, period until that early Friday morning when the suspect was captured, just like reading as much as I could about it. And I remember it was an odd week for me because I was working in Boston at the time, but I was actually off that week, so I didn't have to go in, which made it interesting, although it meant that somebody else was using my desk during that week because the office that is actually near the marathon finish line, they needed to move those people around to whatever empty desks were there. And I went to a Fleetwood Mac concert, which happened to be on the Thursday of that week, and the marathon bombing was on the Monday. And it was just a really weird vibe in there. And on the way back, we hear on the radio that there was a shooting at MIT, and it just felt like the craziest week in history. And my wife and I, we stayed up all night watching this footage uh, from Watertown where they had tracked down these two guys. And one of them, of course, was shot dead, the brother. And then they find the other guy after basically shutting down the whole city where it was like, don't don't leave your house. And, you know, maybe not as far up as where I live because I'm 30 miles out. But like uh, Keithy, who lived in Watertown where the manhunt was, as we were talking about it the other day, he said, you know, I, I lived that, that Mark Wahlberg movie that came out. Yeah, I actually lived that. But, you know, in thinking thinking about it, I mean, it, 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 just, it was just so, so crazy. And the sad thing for me is that the Marathon Day is one of the most, boss, quote-unquote, Boston days of the year. It's just very chill. You have the Red Sox game that is in the morning that they used to do because you'd, when you'd get out of the game, the leaders from the Marathon would be running by at, at around the time that the baseball game would let, be letting out. They changed the way the race is done, so it's really just something now where you know you're in the city and it's part of the whole thing. So they catch the guy on the Friday, and I'll never forget how they actually caught him. Is they had everybody locked in their homes in Watertown, and then eventually, about six p.m. on Friday, the police come out and say, "All right, well, we got to give this up for right now. We can't keep everybody locked in your homes forever. So, like, you know, go on with your business." So what happened was this guy he goes out back to smoke a nail 
and he notices something's wrong with his boat out back and it puts two and two together figures out the the marathon bomber is hiding in his boat and that's how they ended up finding him which was the because the guy went outside because the cops said look you know you got to leave your house at some point and all that but it prompted one of my favorite line i mean it was after you go through a serious week like that uh, you know you need some humor in your life my friend beryl saying oh my god they caught him using the fake to third throw to first thing that never works in baseball and like yes that is a very apt baseball analogy for all that but that's certainly nothing i ever want to relive again and transitioning from that very awkwardly to the event center with sean mooney who used to be a reporter here in boston on wbz he actually was on the lapsed fan podcast recently i was I was listening to that because of course those guys are from the boston area and talking to mooney about his time at wbz4 after he was at wor in new york so this would have been mid to late 90s because he went right to wor channel 9 in new york was working on the newscast in like 1994 so he goes right from throwing it to virgil in the events center to new york news and then eventually he ends up in boston replace he said he was replacing jack williams on like the midday or whatever and jack williams had been around in boston forever so not an enviable position for him so he talks about the marathon match coming up at the Nassau Coliseum on October 20th, but our main event for that show is Hulk Hogan versus Bad News Brown. And the Hulks are defending the title, so we're going to hear from him. And I'm kind of kind of holding my breath here because you know, Bad News Brown being a person of color, we all know Hulk has some of his foibles with that, and you know he's had some issues with the language over the years. So let's see what he has to say, and if he keeps it clean. You know something, bad news, Brown. Your timing's perfect, brother. Perfect for you. Perfect for me. Perfect for the WWF man. I'm peaked. I'm in my prime. After the Macho Man. After all the Andre the Giants. After all the multi-million dollar men. After all the number one contenders, bad news, Brown. I figured sooner or later you and I were gonna get it on. Oh yeah. I gotta give you credit. I gotta give you due. You took your place at the back of the line and you maimed and you tore your way all the way to the number one contender position. But the thing that tears me apart, the thing that makes this thing personal, not just business, is the way you insult all my little Hulkamaniacs, dude. The way you call <laughs> man. The way you slap all your opponents around. The way you say that all <laughs> should be back in the ghetto, brother. I know what's going on in the ghetto, brother. I dealed with I beat up when I was a little teeny hulkster. I even busted up But let me tell you something, Bad News Brown. I got your number. I'm not sure what the this means. If it means ghetto power, Harlem power, red, yellow, or green power. But all my little Hulkamaniacs look the same to me, brother. All right. Hulk Hogan, everybody. <laughs> The interesting thing about October 20th at the Nassau Coliseum is not so much that show, but another crew was scheduled to be in San Francisco at the Cow Palace. Now, with this being October 20th, 1989, that got postponed because of the San Francisco earthquake, which took place on the 17th. And it said that it got postponed to the 25th, which felt a little soon to be running a show there, because I don't even think the World Series got going again until around the 27th. So it would be interesting that the WWF was running shows there at that point. But 
Wow, I'm, I'm still trying to get past that Hogan promo. That was something else. And now, making their way to the ring, the new king and queen of the World Wrestling Federation, Macho Man Randy Savage and Sensational Siren. I have to admit, I'm a little down on Howard Finkel for not calling her the sensational Sherry as he would often do, like the George Washington University or the Ohio State University, but that's not going to stop me from enjoying the hell out of this beautiful, beautiful, brief four to five minute segment, the coronation of the macho man Randy Savage and the sensational Sherry, which, as good as that is, This is a situation where all the heels get together in solidarity and stand in the ring and watch this coronation take place, which is something that I love personally because it raises more questions that you you have to answer to yourself in your head, such as, was this mandatory for everybody in the heel locker room? Probably not. So this is something that had to be organized. Who would be the organizer for such a thing? I don't think Savage would kind of run his own party here. It's kind of like a wedding. So, obviously, this seems like something for the genius Lanny Poffo to round up everybody, which probably wasn't, you know, easy for him because he's fairly new to the heel locker room as well. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't know his way around yet, but it's so nice to see the genius and the macho man side by side in a situation like this because in the WWF it didn't happen that often and enjoying the hell out of them a couple of weeks ago doing that Memphis show. Now there are guys who are not there. Basically any heels that wrestled on this show such as we got Rick Rude coming up. We had bad news earlier. I think I think bad news would actually be a pretty bad guest to have at any of these because he he always seems to be the guy who like walks out angrily or you know would basically cause a scene. The Rougeos are not here either, and there's only one heel that I could think of in the whole company who's not there, and that would be Andre the Giant or Andre the Ultimate Giant, probably because he's got his face painted, and also he really hates baby oil, as we found out years later. Even the Macho Man's old enemies put everything aside to be there for his coronation. So I gotta give big ups to Jimmy Hart, an enemy for years. The Honky Tonk Man, a guy who threw down Elizabeth back in 87 on Saturday Night's Main Event. You got... Akeem and the boss man who, you know, the Twin Towers are going against the Mega Powers at that time, only six months before this. From the perspective of human nature, it's really nice to see. Also, you got the randos in the ring, like the ones who, like, why is Barry Windham at Macho Man's ceremony? Well, because he's a good friend, apparently. Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard, they're there as well. They're wearing the tag team belts, which I like for whatever reason. The Warlord and the Barbarian are just kind of standing in the background, like, just kind of like, what are we supposed to do here? They're in their full gear, their full gimmick, everything. Mr. Perfect is there, and I noticed he's standing pretty close to Barry Windham, so I'd have to imagine that this is where they got together and decided, you know what, maybe they share a love of country music, and at some point, if we're in a promotion that's going down the tubes, we're going to form a country music band. Oh yeah, there's one more heel who isn't there, and it's Virgil, who is actually very conspicuous by his absence, because Ted DiBiase is also there, because the Macho Man and him are besties. 
We got friggin' Dino Bravo, who's playing the role of Bruce Hart, like kind of front and center acting like he's been Savage's best friend for 25 years or something like that, like over-applauding, like, all right, Dino, we, we get it. You, you're definitely over-pushed on television. You don't need to try and steal the show from this. And then you got the former king. And poor Haku, who is standing there like a gentleman, even as he's getting cucked by this entire scene, because he was the king only a couple of months before this at WrestleMania 5, he wore the crown to the ring. And now all of a sudden, Savage beats the guy who beat Haku, and he has to stand there and watch his coronation. But he's decided to just be the bigger man about all this. And as I said, Teddy Biasi is there as well, because we, you have that secret friendship alliance with Savage and DiBiase that was clearly formed at some point in 1988 where they have a mutual admiration society. They form a timeshare around Zeus where they kind of trade him back and forth. 1990 Royal Rumble, they get together. They're, they're kind of teaming up very early in that match. So obviously, as I said, this is Lanny Poffo's event that he has organized. So it is only fitting that the Poet Laureate of the World Wrestling Federation would read something of a proclamation. But before we get to that, as they come to the ring, you got Jesse and Vince kind of commenting on everything. But <laughs> there, there, obviously there's going to be some bizarre commentary from Vince McMahon. He is a very strange human being. But this one, with regards to how Sherry looks, uh, <laughs> once again, I'm left scratching my head like that Rougeau promo. I didn't just cut that off. Vince just kind of ended his thought there. I was wondering where he was going with that or what what the deal was. I mean, you know, Sherry was kind of crazy, apparently, behind the scenes. Sometimes. I don't mean crazy bad. I mean crazy good in that, you know, she was, you know, she, you know, she, she'd do a lot of things. Anyway, so Lanny is going to read the proclamation. The thing I got to credit Jesse for on this is he he realizes how awesome this is. Like, it's almost as if he could see through, like, a time portal 30 years from now and knew how much I was going to enjoy this. So we get Lanny, and this is not so much his straight-up poetry. It's something more long-form from Lanny. Behold this humble entourage. Their heads are bowed in reverence at the very slightest whisper of one name, exalting in his splendor, which is altogether fitting of the people and the land from whence he came. False monarchies are commonplace as kingdoms rise and fall, but I, the genius full of glory and renown, say the macho man is everything that everybody everywhere would ever, ever want to wear a crown. I say this king deserves a queen beside him on the throne. And Sherry is the fairest in the land. Nobody else is worthy of this monumental honor and the regal splendor of his royal hand. We witness the dethroning of one Jim the Hacksaw Duggan, whose crown and robe are in a state of ravage. I now remove my mortar board and place it near my heart and 
thus proclaim you Macho King Randy Savage. I'm glad the genius took his time with that. In fact, it could have stood to even be a little bit longer, maybe not as long as the Robin Leach whereas speech from WrestleMania 4 when he like unveiled the belt or introduced the tournament or whatever the hell it was. Because I could not get enough of looking around at all the various heels in the ring just to kind of check out what they're doing as this thing's being read. By the way, Greg the Hammer Valentine is also there as well. He's fairly front and center. But, like, the barbarian is over the shoulder of the genius. So it's kind of like that deal where the president is doing the State of the Union address and you have the Speaker of the House and the Vice President behind them where you always kind of want one of them to make, like, a face or something like that. And the the, the barbarian is just kind of like, oh, what am I supposed to do? They cut to a different angle, and you see Tully Blanchard with just a smug smile. I, I, I love that. It was so appropriate for that character. Although, as I said, they're wearing the belts. You're kind of hoping that maybe Tully would carry the belt, since, you know, he's very good at that, as I said last week. Cut to the other side. Akeem is kind of shucking back and forth, as he was wont to do. Now, this is the point where Akeem has now switched to the yellow hat and is wearing more of a yellow getup than the blue one. Not sure what prompted that change, but I think it was kind of a sign of a downfall for him. And then at the end, when all the heels applaud, I noticed, and I'm going to call him out for this, the warlord not applauding the genius's proclamation there. And I'm, what's your deal there, warlord, you big weirdo? I don't, I don't get it. So they present Savage with a robe that says Macho King on the back of it. Which, which is a very nice gesture. I don't know if it's, like, from all of them or something like that. You know, like the three wise men. I, I have no idea. But Ted DiBiase, he's there. He's the rich guy. So he's going to show everybody up because he is secret best friends with the macho man Randy Savage. And instead of, I don't know, getting together with the Widowmaker Barry Windham and Arn and Tully and forming his own WWF Four Horsemen who would stand behind him at all times, He's just bearing gifts for the Macho Man. Wait a minute. The Million Dollar Man has a gift. A gift worthy only of a king. So to you, the newly crowned Macho King Randy Savage, I give you this gift a king should never be without. This golden scepter. Solid golden scepter. A scepter, you say? The very same scepter that the Macho King would use against the Ultimate Warrior at the 1991 Royal Rumble, causing Sergeant Slaughter to win that match, and then leading to the career-ending match at WrestleMania 7, in which the Macho King drops his crown de facto because he loses the career-ending match? That's some good storytelling there if you extrapolate it out, if you kind of fill in those blanks. Of course, these days, WWE asks you to fill in way too many blanks. But if you go back, you know, a lot of it's there for you, but it's very easy to fill in for for whatever reason. It just might be my own insanity. As they show the angle of DiBiase giving him the scepter, you see, once again, Haku in the background having to watch all of this. This poor guy. If you wanted to come up with an angle out of all this you just have Haku snap from having to watch this and he just destroys the entire heel locker room tell me that guy wouldn't have gotten over if he had just destroyed 12 guys in the ring 
It's not as if you could look at Haku and say, yeah, I don't buy that guy beating up 12 people at the same time because it probably happened on the regular. All right, that's fine. We got to keep Haku where he is, so he's got a team with Andre at some point. As Savage is holding the scepter, which has a big knob, the glass knob on the top of it, Sherry comes over and is looking. I've got to post the screenshot of this. She's looking in awe at the knob of the scepter and just kind of leans into it for a closer look. And now, strangely, I'm aroused by looking at this, like Sherry getting very close to it. So, uh, moving on. I mean, this thing has everything that I'm looking for. There's so much to look at. It's like it's like a painting of a scene that you'd see in like a dentist's office where there's like you know, you're sitting in the chair and you get like the Novocaine in and you're just kind of looking at all the stuff that's happening. There's like children skating, there's pe- ki- you know, kids on sleds. There's like two people talking to each other. There there's all sorts of things happening. But the main thing with the coronation of the Macho King, Randy Savage, is that he made it his own. He gave himself original gear with an original-looking crown. I remember the action figure for Savage came with that crown. So no more this cartoon king shit like from the Brady Bunch where you got Harley Race and you got Hacksaw Jim Duggan and Haku all wearing the same thing. No, Savage gets the crown says, you know what, I'm king, so I will decide what I am going to wear. And the Macho King, as a benevolent ruler, apparently, goes and shakes everybody's hand afterwards to kind of thank them for coming out, almost like a modified receiving line. He even shakes the honky-tonk man's hand. The, I mean, for anybody who watched 1987 and 88 WWF, that has to be just mind-blowing. Yeah, I know time heals all wounds, but Savage shaking the hand of the honky-tonk man, it just seems crazy to me. But he doesn't shake the warlord's hand. You know why? Because the king knows that the warlord did not applaud. He's kind of like that one guy. I'm not saying that the warlord is Winston Smith or anything from 1984. But, you know, there's something certainly going on. And Savage and Sherry, they can't just walk to the back. Instead, they're going to get the sedan ride carried by the jobbers. Another king trope that... I've always enjoyed. They don't make any of the heel locker room actually care. I wonder if they made the heel jobbers, like your Brooklyn Brawlers and your Barry Horowitz, although he's he's coming up a little bit later. In fact, he's in the next match. So I didn't recognize any of the guys who are actually carrying it. And even though you got Savage and Sherry there, you got two people, it's still not as bad as King Mabel alone would be. Meanwhile, in the back of his mind, Vince is like, hmm, Helmsley, that's a pretty good name. Better hang on to that one. Savage becoming the king here. It was tough times for kings and other autocrats in 1989. Late in the year, you got the thing with Noriega in Panama. You got communism falling in Eastern Europe. Nikolai Ceausescu captured in Romania, and they execute him and his wife on Christmas. And obviously, you had Harley Race losing the crown technically to Haku at the Royal Rumble, who then loses it to Duggan, who then loses it to Savage. So kings are not safe at this point in time. But Savage, for whatever it it was, probably because he's as good of a talent as there ever has been in the world of professional wrestling, he made this thing work better than anybody else. 
The officials now are discussing whether Reynad came out of the end zone with this ball and then back into the end zone to down it. After conversation with the crew, we have a safety. The receiver caught the ball in the field of play, stepped back into the end zone, and took a knee. That's an excellent call by the officials. This is kind of what I'm aiming for with the sports stuff, unless it's personal and I was there or something like that. Weird things that happened that clearly have been forgotten. Like, from the 2013 season opener, the kickoff at the beginning of the game, the Steelers are kicking off to the Tennessee Titans. The guy gets the ball at the goal line, like takes a step out of the end zone by like a foot, and then he steps back and tries to get the touchback, and it is ruled a safety. All of this takes place one second into the season. Because I was at the Patriots-Bills game, and I'm looking at the out-of-town scoreboard just after the ball is kicked off just to see who was playing, and I see Pittsburgh's already up 2-0 on the Titans. I'm like, how the hell did that happen? They're like, what, did Andrew McCutcheon hit a two-run homer or something? No, a safety one second into the season. Funny enough, though, Tennessee won that game 16-9, to and the Steelers lost their first four games to start the season. <laughs> Just hilarious how that ended up happening. Of course, the Titans weren't very good themselves. So there's an awkward cut on the video right into the next match. As I said, Barry Horowitz, and he is taking on Brutus the Barber Beefcake. And I wondered what I missed because they were already in the middle of the bout, or encounter, as Sean Mooney is wont to say. Apparently what I missed was two girls saying that Brutus the Barber Beefcake, and kind of like a man on the street or woman on the street in this case, saying that Brutus Beefcake is better looking than Rick Martell because that's what the barber has moved on to post-SummerSlam. Uh, kind of interesting we're talking about Beefcake's looks considering what's going to happen to his face less than a year from now. It's a sensible feud, I guess. You know, you want to put two good-looking guys against each other, but it's ultimately forgettable. I wrote a thing on Beefcake from 1989 for my old blog and just kind of going through his year once you get past SummerSlam. And I had mentioned how the, the, the time period is a bit of a black hole for me and I forget a lot of stuff. I did not remember this Beefcake Martell feud where Beefcake cut up some of the clothes that he was modeling or something like that. Because you think of the barber like, oh, he was in the main event of the summer pay-per-view that year and then he's firmly back into the mid-card almost immediately. But hey... Who you know is very helpful, whether it's in professional wrestling, mutual funds. doesn't doesn't really matter where you work. Horowitz gets whipped into the ropes. He grabs the rope so he won't get caught in the sleeper coming back. And he pats himself on the back for that as Horowitz. If you're a jobber, it's good to have like one little gimmicky thing, but you don't want to go too far overboard because... Then, if you have the one thing that's generally enough for people to remember, you don't have to do like a whole bunch of stuff. He ends up getting clotheslined over the top by Beefcake, who catches him. As I look at Beefcake's tights here, there's almost kind of a snake pattern to it, at least the part where there isn't mesh. And then there's the mesh with the hole in it. It, it, it's very modern. I, I almost feel like every woman who has like those ripped jeans with the holes in them owes Beefcake like 10 cents out of whatever purchase from that. And in case you were wondering what happens to the fabric from the holes in Beefcake's gear, Jesse Ventura, of course, is the answer man for that. I just figured out what the deal is. What? That's where Dusty Rhodes gets his polka dots from, I bet. Cuts them out of Beefcake's tights. Could be. 
or not, considering that the polka dots are yellow and nothing on Beefcake's gear is that color. But okay, I'll take that at face value. Horowitz gets slingshotted back in, but then he gets a few shots in in the corner, so he controls for a very brief period, but then he puts his head down, a cardinal mistake for a ring veteran. But Beefcake, rather than just kicking him, kind of takes him, shoves him into the ropes and locks on the sleeper hold as Beefcake. It, it, it's the old Chief J Strongbow style sleeper as we get the arm going down three times. So Brutus the Barber Beefcake picks up the victory here and thus begins or continues the mullet control program that Beefcake instituted in the late 1980s. Because Horowitz has quite a head of hair on him. I mean, you could cut some of that off and probably not even notice. And what Beefcake does immediately is he grabs the party in the back and just starts going to town on it. And this is the end of the taping. Challenge is taped the day before, so Horowitz doesn't have to work at least for a couple days. Give it a little chance, clean it up, all that. He's not wrestling until uh, about three days from now against Mark Young in Nashville. So no harm, no foul. But as the haircut is going on, we get another Vince and Jesse back and forth. You wish you had that kind of small motor coordination. That kind of what? That's what I said. Small motor coordination. Oh, come on, Jesse. You know the, what Vince meant. He meant, you know, motor skills, like using your hands for stuff. Like you probably worked with your wife, Terry, with your kids, Tyrell and Jade, which I only know that because you said hello to them on every single show. You know, stuff like building blocks, clapping your hands, pasting things onto paper. Yes, I'm reading a list of things that are recommended that you do with your children to help them develop their motor skills. That's what Vince is talking about. And look at me. You've, you've got me defending Vince McMahon saying weird stuff. Ugh. And so it was, late in the 20th century, that a pox fell upon the land, a plague of home videos that were limited in intelligence. There was brain drain, and terminal boredom swept the countryside. The maker looked down and was not pleased by what he saw, and said, this is not good. And so it was, he brought forth Genesis, a system with twice the power, twice the intelligence, twice the challenge, twice the fun. This is very close to the launch of the Sega Genesis in North America. I want to say it was the fall of 1989. I looked it up. I saw that August of 89, they did a formal limited launch in New York City only. I didn't adopt Genesis until probably a couple of years later. And the thing that got me to do Genesis rather than Super Nintendo was... Joe Montana sports talk football. I mean, they had games where the uh, there would be an announcer talking back to you. In fact, the announcer for sports talk football was Lon Simmons, who actually did, I think, San Francisco 49ers games or something like that. But that's what got me into that. So I'm Team Genesis and not Team Super Nintendo. That was always a bone of contention in high school. It was the Genesis and the Super Nintendo people. Like, which console are we going to play each other on? It's also an ad for Skittles, the Teeth Zapper, and Oxy-10, the Zit Zapper. I thought it was appropriate that those two together. And Brute Cologne. I don't think I've ever worn cologne in my entire life other than maybe, like, it was in a gift box given to me, like, 20-something years ago. I, I really just don't see the point for any of that. Back to the Genesis thing. To tell you how early 
this was they were advertising Tommy Lasorda baseball as their you know one of their sports games which I don't even remember playing that because it was probably outdated almost as soon as it was released so into our next match we have Ravishing Rick Rude taking on Public Terry Daniels because he's no longer a private there's no Cobra Corps with Sergeant Slaughter so he's Public Terry Daniels to me and Rude as I said he's in the middle of his feud with Roddy Piper playing out on primetime wrestling go to the YouTube channel all out of bubblegum it has pretty much all the prime times where it's heenan and piper going back and forth rude interjects himself at one point and there's a fight on the set which leads to piper and heenan switching places heenan back at gorilla's side jesse as rude comes to the ring talks about women fainting in the crowd and tells vince to be on the lookout for that and we get our normal pre-match rick rude routine and he's in the state of maine so just take a guess what his punchline is going to be what I'd like to have right now is for all you fat, out of shape, mean morons, keep the noise down while I take my robe off and show the ladies the sexiest man alive. Hit the music. You know, McMahon, with or without the belt, all right i gotta find out if i'm the only one who thought this way back in the day because jesse would always bring up how rick rude was the jesse the body award winner at the slammies and he was in 1987 so for a long time i wondered was there some sort of secret 1988 slammies that just never aired or something that there's no footage of where rude repeated as the jesse body award winner and it never happened i was fooled into thinking that there was another slammies because they would never refer to past slammy awards with literally anybody else except for rick rude with the jesse the body award where he stripped down to uh, a pretty much a g-string and gene oakland coming out with the towel so yeah i thought that there was a 1988 slammies that that it was being kept from me or whatever so vince points out hey what's the deal with you just keep bringing this up but jesse of course he's got a needle vince and he's got to give him a complex about body images yeah when's an award gonna be up for grabs again there's nobody to contend with it we need a contender first maybe you want to go for it i doubt it it wouldn't mean anything at least you could say you might have won something in your life terry daniels well that's right i forgot you won the ivy league croquet title what's wrong with that oh did you break a sweat something to be proud of despite jesse's references that were constant over the years of vince being an ivy league dude he actually went to east carolina and so did linda mcmahon the terry daniels starts out by going to the abs against rick rude which feels like a stupid decision in any sort of fight or whatever and he gets chucked to the outside so we get an inset promo from the ravishing one referencing the attacks on each other between he and piper piper so we both gave each other a little lesson on personal hygiene but i learned one more thing about you on the brother love show your fists move very very fast but your brain is real slow 
I don't think it's possible for anything that is that addled with cocaine to actually move slowly. So I throw the challenge flag on what Rick Rude is saying. He hits the Rude Awakening right after, so finishes off public Terry Daniels. And that Piper feud, like I said, playing out on primetime wrestling is so much damn fun. But in terms of the matches, I don't know if, how long it's been since I've seen any of these. Like I said, at main events, or at least I consider it the main event of that MSG show. I keep referring to it because it went on last. But if I'm going to Madison Square Garden on that night, I'm going to see Rick Rude versus Roddy Piper and not the Ultimate Warrior versus Andre the Giant. I'm sorry. That's just the way that it is. So I, I kind of want to see more of these matches to see what the chemistry between these two guys was. Because because Rude was always strange in how he would work with other guys. Like, for example, he's the best opponent of the Ultimate Warrior, a notoriously difficult guy to work with. I mean, some might argue Randy Savage because you have the WrestleMania 7 match, but Rude has this long series with the Warrior, so I'll, I'll give him credit for that. But he couldn't work well with Ric Flair. He couldn't work with Hulk Hogan because he hit him in the freaking head with a, the corner of a wooden chair at the Boston Garden in January of 1988. So just kind of odd and with with Rude, but as far as I know that these matches were pretty good, maybe not to the level of Piper versus Orndorff from 85 and into early 6, but still pretty damn good. But because this is a Rick Rude match in 1989, we're going to invite one of Maine's finest into the ring although the woman comes in and jesse says that's the best Maine has to offer which is a bit of a cheap shot i mean she's not terrible by 1989 standards her genes definitely are of the time and she goes in for the kiss and goes all the way down to the mat there without incident there's nobody running in or anything like that the thing that i'll note the most here is on the replay of the Rude Awakening. You can see it kind of from Heenan's perspective over his shoulder. And I notice he has a pinky ring on his left finger that has the initials BH on it. And I was like, wow, I thought I knew everything there was to know about Bobby Heenan. And just watching this particular program, learn something new. They battle in the corner. It's finesse by Keith around for a beat in front. I edit those two clips together from the end of Game 6 of the 2013 Stanley Cup Final to just kind of prove how quickly those two goals were scored in the game. It was 17 seconds apart, and the two clips together were like 16.6 seconds or something like that. So yeah, it sucked to lose that way, and I booed the crap out of Gary Bettman presenting the Stanley Cup because there was a lockout that year, in case you forgot. You know, there's one about every eight years in the NHL. Sometimes they cancel the season, and sometimes they don't. By the way, some crappy coverage by Milan Lucic on Bickle in front on the uh, tying goal, but that's all water under the bridge. At the very least, Chicago in 2013, that Blackhawks team was the most honest team that the Bruins have played in the playoffs in all the years that have had season tickets. It's not a very long list. I'd say they're number one. Tampa Bay in 2011 is number two. And I have Columbus at number three for now, but who knows You know how that's going to go. I mean, we've only played three games so far, so things can always get ugly at any time. 
And speaking of ugly, we go to the event center, and it's my three least favorite words in the English language. Ultimate Warrior promo. Once upon a time, until now, the most naturally gifted professional athlete in the entire wrestling world. Now, you Andre the Giant, continue to humiliate yourself by cheaply painting your face and titling yourself the Ultimate Giant. There is but one giant. There is but one warrior. I am the Ultimate Warrior. Unlike most Ultimate Warrior promos, I didn't want to die in the middle of that. He kept it to 30 seconds, although to be on the safe side, I sped it up by about 35-40% to cut it down to 22. Every little bit counts as I get near to the end of this show, because i got to make room for the second promo in this event center, which is for Rowdy Roddy Piper on Ravishing Rick Rude. Once again, I cannot do it justice, but... If you want to, if you want to take, make Roddy Piper take a verbal drug test, be my guest. Yes, yes. <laughs> Tell you, spade a weasel. <laughs> you know, my whole life I've done exactly what the heck I wanted to do. My whole life I had people picking on me. I'm the only man that can walk down Hollywood and Vine looking like this and not have to take the home pregnancy test, baby. Rick Rude, you think that you just jumped on somebody just passing through? Did you forget to answer who, poo, hot rod? You too can forget one thing, you know, everybody got to pay the piper one time or another. Of course, boobs is sitting around going, oh, because there ain't no more family members coming. Of course, there's a big difference between me and you. Yeah, while well, you're sitting around laughing and joking, I'm going to be there, a smoking and a poking. If you watch one of the prime times, Piper is actually smoking on the air, but smoking at a poking, what is that in reference? Is that in reference to, like, a woman who's... If she smokes, she pokes. <laughs> hey, I have absolutely no idea if that is actually true. All I know is that I had more interesting human interactions when I smoked rather than after. Or maybe it was because I had to mix it up in, like, those leper colonies outside of bars. I, I think that probably has everything to do. And by the way, kids, don't smoke. It's too damn expensive. You're, you're better off directing your money into food or something else. So they go to a commercial again, and I'm very excited because it looks like an ad for 21 Jump Street. But it's actually for the spinoff program, Booker, which lasted one season and entirely forgettable. And then an ad for a Hyundai Excel that would cost $5,224. I don't know if this is the 89 or the 90 model, but this is why Alec Baldwin was taking shots at Hyundai in the Glen Gary Glen Ross speech. You know why, mister? Because you drove a Hyundai to get here tonight. I drove an $80,000 BMW. That's my name. Hey, I've been a Hyundai owner since 2003, so I've had no complaints with those cars. I think it's something that got better as you got further into the 90s. I think in the 80s, Korean cars were not really known for, you know, being all that good. And as they wrap up here after the commercials for Tops, not the baseball cards, but for an appliance place in North Jersey, get an advertisement for the Lawn Doctor, which I actually got that as my birthday present this year to have lawn people come in. I always, you know, decried that as cheating, but I just can't get the lawn to work the way that I want it. Now my biggest problem that I have to contend with are the two rabbits who hang out in my backyard, and I'm not happy about it because you know when you got two rabbits, there's probably going to be four, and then there's going to be eight, and you know the whole deal. 
And also there's an ad for a movie called Thief of Hearts, which I want to say was Bruce Hart's nickname back in Stampede. I don't know. And Lord Al, promotional consideration paid for by Life, the board game. Always disappointing when we break out that one. It, I mean, I could name 15 board games that are better than that, including the Sale of the Century board game, the Family Ties board game that I'm just dying to find in my mother's basement somewhere. Listermint. I feel like they're getting enough free advertising because the hygiene products that Piper and Rude were pouring over each other in their feud. You know, I figure they'll probably use a little bit of Listermint. Mike Ditka for Peak Antifreeze. I think it's funny that an antifreeze company is spending money to get Mike Ditka in 1989 when, you know, he, he certainly had huge name value, kind of, you know, because those Bears teams were still very good. Although in 89, they kind of sucked. I think they went 6-10. and 10. And Electronic Battleship, which I don't understand what the point of Electronic Battleship is. I mean, you can, it's the same freaking game, except it makes a, stupid noises that you're going to make on your own anyway. So anyway, that is a wrap for WWF Superstars of Wrestling, as it was still known, for September 30th, 1990. Now, elsewhere in podcast land, the wrestling podcast about nothing, with Brawler, Brian Malonis, and Mike Crockett, have a lengthy talk with independent wrestling veteran Sonny Goodspeed, where he discusses many topics, including uh, uh, Tony Atlas's uh, proclivities to having to do with, you know, south of the waist and south of the ankle and all that. On the Our Vantage Point podcast, they take a look at WCW Prime from April 1st of 1996. That's not an April Fool's joke. And luckily, it is one of the episodes with Chris Cruz and Dusty Rhodes. I don't, I don't even care about any Prime episodes that don't have Cruz and Dusty. It's the only team that I will actually pay attention to. And the sportscasters with Steve Bennett will be returning shortly. And there's something bubbling under the surface, something big going to be coming to the sportscasters very soon. I thank you so much for listening. And for next week, I am actually, again, trying to plan out the shows in advance instead of flying by the seat of my pants. I'll be taking a look at the AWA again from January 3rd, 1990. So only, you know, three months or so after this. And boy, the AWA just going full speed ahead into the 90s with Eric Bischoff there, the Team Challenge Series. Who better to lead you into the 1990s than Larry Zbysko? I mean, he's, he's going to get you there very, very slowly, but he'll get you there event- eventually. I'm pretty sure that there'll be an addition of According to Larry that'll make its dramatic return to Greetings from Allentown. I always like to hear what Larry Z has to say. Now, if you could, if you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes or Apple Music or whatever your podcatcher is to Greetings from Allentown and the Pro Wrestling Only feed so you won't miss any of the exciting shows coming down over the next several weeks. And a five-star review on iTunes is always helpful because it provides what is known as social proof that you are listening to and enjoying this program. And also tell a friend who is interested in a wrestling podcast where the host really doesn't talk about wrestling all that much and talks about baseball and hockey and all that sort of stuff. And I apologize to anybody who was expecting to hear the David Ortiz Grand Slam from the ALCS because... I'm not going to antagonize Detroit Tigers fans anymore. I mean, they got no hit the last game of the season. It's probably against the Miami Marlins. Probably kind of embarrassing. So that's just my line of thinking on that. So, as I said, next week, AWA, January 6th, 1990, Team Challenge Series, all that hoo-ha and crap. Feel the excitement in the air. And do tune in then 
for another exciting episode of Greetings from Town. <laughs> <laughs>